Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today's episode 212, we're going to be doing a little bit of a different format. We're going to be focusing on the 10 steps of Addicts Anonymous, primarily step one. And I'm joined by Kevin and Mel, two of the admins from my group that help run Addicts Anonymous. How are you guys doing today? How are you doing, Kevin? Wonderful. How are you, Jim? I'm doing well. And how about you, Mel? How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad that you have everybody here. So we're going to start off with reading a little bit um, from the Addicts Anonymous workbook. Uh, bear with us. It's a work in progress. But uh, here's a little excerpt from there, and we're going to talk about it once I'm done reading. So here we go. I think one of the first things that needs to be done is to admit to ourselves and to another human being that we are facing addiction issues and need help. Whether you need their specific help or not does not matter. It is primarily about being able to own up and admit you have a problem. Most of us have kept the secret for a very long time. It's good to finally admit this to another person. It can lessen the weight on your shoulders. For some reason, just talking about this can bring immense relief to the person sharing. To break this step down a little more, I would like to focus on the first two words. We accept it. These two words are very powerful. So many of us have had trouble for many years upon admitting we were an addict and had problems. Many of us just went on denying the fact that we needed help. We admitted nothing. For us to make this decision to ask for help from others is extremely difficult. So many of us have finally got to the point where we said to ourselves, I need help. And that comes only after many years of addiction and for some hitting rock bottom completely. And some have hit their rock bottom a few times. But all that matters at this point is the fact that you are asking for help. That is the first step in the process and extremely important to your recovery. You need to accept what is the reality of your life. With this step, the first thing we really need to think about is why we decided to get sober in the first place. For some, this might have been a quick decision, and you really need to take the time and think about why you're truly doing this. For some, this might have been something that has been building up for quite a long time, maybe even years. Many of us have been in denial for quite some time. So that's the excerpt, and uh, I should have started with step one, but I didn't. But here's actually the wording of step one, which is we accepted that our lives had become impossible to manage. We could not control our addiction. So as it said in the uh, body of what I read, we're going to focus on we accept it. So let me ask you guys, what did it, when did you first accept that you had a problem? Let's start with you, Kevin. Um, probably when I was 16 years old. So uh, when, when you were 16, when did you actually start drinking? Uh, 13. So it was fairly quickly you, you found out you had a problem. Well, I had been in uh, Alateen for four years by, you know, I stopped going to Alateen when, when I was 14 because I just was drinking and, and using drugs too much to, you know, I, I just didn't feel right, you know, going to Alateen anymore. Um, so by the time I was 16, it was actually my brother who was like 17, 18, said to me yeah he said you know we're probably alcoholics and i was like yeah yeah probably right you know because my dad was an alcoholic and but he was sober you know he got sober when i was seven um but i was well aware of you know aa's 12 steps and alateen steps and and you know a, a little bit of recovery you know uh, i was aware of so um yeah i pretty much accepted the fact that you know that this might be my life it, it wasn't that bad then but I had to do something every day at that point. It was either I had to drink or I had to smoke pot or, you know, I was already smoking cigarettes on a full, full fledged basis by 16. And, you know, 
if it wasn't pot or booze, it was, uh, you know, Coke or meth, um, yeah, or pills, you know, but there was something in my system every day. You know, from the time I was 13, 13 and a half till I was 23, you know, to, to my first rehab, I, there was something in my system every day. Yeah. So let me ask you, Mel, when was the first time you accepted that you needed a problem? How long did it take you? Um, well, um, it took years. It took a lot of years um, up until I was about 28 years old. So from 14 to 28, I really didn't, I, I acknowledged that I had a problem, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. Um, I knew it was horrible for me and I knew it was ruining my life, but I didn't want to accept the fact that this is my life because I didn't want to change it. I, I wanted to change it, but I thought it was too hard and, and thought it was just going to be like something that I wouldn't be able to do. And, um, uh, even after my car accident, which landed me paralyzed for about six years, um, I still was just self-loathing and um, depressed, wouldn't get out of bed, drank, did drugs. Like, it was a hell of a six years. And uh, after after about six years, I realized that all my friends and family were pushing me away, and I was burning bridges left and right because I wasn't, like, sticking to promises, and I was just um, screwing people over. And once I realized like I had nowhere to go, um, I, I checked into, I checked into a hotel to detox. Um, and that was a very interesting experience, but, uh, yeah, that's where it all started. The, um, the detox and, and the acknowledgement of it. What do you think? Well, I'm trying to think of when I accepted, so I should answer my question that I'm asking you guys for me. It took a long time. It took about 20 years um, from the time I was 17 until the time I was 37. I was usually like Kevin said on something. Um, there were brief periods of time. Like there was a time for a year. I didn't do anything. So I was on probation and I was facing going to jail. because I had gotten in a lot of trouble. So if I, if I violated my probation, I was looking at jail time. So I was actually able, I got caught twice smoking and they gave me a second chance. And they extended my probation actually to two years. And then um, I quit for that second year. Oh, wow. Um, but for me to actually accept I had a problem was I was trying to get my ex-girlfriend back. She mentioned detox to me. She said, that's probably what you need. I didn't know what detox was at the time. Like I, I was not in the, re I, didn't, I didn't know about rehab and stuff. You know, some people become familiar with it because they've done it so many times. I had no yeah. idea about it. So I, I called a couple places and I called my ex-girlfriend like, oh, you should come over. Please come talk to me. I'm trying my hardest to get myself into a rehab. So she actually agrees to come over. And what do you think that Jimmy did while he was waiting for her to come over? He got um, drunk and popped a couple of <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So yeah. she gets over. I'm all messed up. She's yelling and screaming at me. Somehow I get thrown down the stairs. Um mm -hmm. And I go after her and corner her and she just goes running. I didn't run after her. Well, actually I did. But then I stopped. And then I was like, what the hell am I doing? And the next morning when I woke up and really didn't remember anything, like it took me almost a year to get my memory back of the situation, but I didn't remember anything at yeah. first. And I was like, what happened? I was like, you were literally calling her over to try and say you're going to rehab. And you, uh, and that's when I realized like I have a problem yeah. because 
if somebody else told me that story, like, oh, I had a friend who did this, I would say he sounds like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. right he's waiting for his girlfriend to come over to impress her that he's going to rehab and he gets drunk Yeah. and my excuse I've was I've had say again Mel I've had that happen to me before too. You don't feel bad. yeah <laughs> no I like mean it, it is my story so it's part of it but it helped got me sober made me wake up Yeah. and obviously the big thing that I'm not mentioning is she was pregnant at the time so I'm, I had my daughter coming So I, I didn't want to be a drunk for my daughter. Yeah, So my and at daughter the same was the time, primary I thought motivation. you were. Yeah, that's that's good. At the same time, like in those situations, it's terrifying because you don't know, you're not sure like how to be a parent. You've never been one before. And so you're trying to cope with the idea of that and also trying to stop so that you can be a better parent. Yeah. So it's a, it's a windy road. <laughs> It is. So, I mean, as far as acceptance, it's a big deal. A lot of people, they wait too long, I think. Um, I think that's a major problem as far as accepting, you know, the first two words of the, the step is a lot of people just wait too long. They don't accept they have a problem. They don't, they won't, they, they try and hide from the fact too long. I know I did for a long time, but technically I knew that I had a problem before the, I went to rehab. It was just, it really hit me hard. And, and like the fact that I was having a daughter and all that happened, that really hit me hard. Like, okay, you really need help now. You knew you needed help for a while, but now you need to actually get it. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, it's good that it changed you like that. Um, it, that's actually what happened um, with my, my youngest son. I, um, I was on meth, a whole lot of meth every single day and opiates also. And um, I just like remember getting on the floor on my knees and praying to God, like, please give me a miracle to get me out of this because I'm, I'm going to kill myself eventually. And um, like, I'm not saying that he gave me my son to get me to stop doing drugs, but I found out I was pregnant a week later and um, I stopped doing everything. And I was like, that's an odd way to give me a miracle, God. <laughs> Yeah. but um, it, it really, uh, it made me stop everything for a while. But after he was born, unfortunately, I went back to doing some stuff I shouldn't have been doing. I always found it how amazing that women and a lot of women quit everything they're doing when they find out they're pregnant. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's second nature. You don't even really think about it. Some of them go I can't. bad. Some don't. Yeah. Then, then again, Yeah. some don't. Uh, there are some, I know some that use throughout their pregnancy. I've, obviously, I've heard a lot of stories. So I know a lot of people who Yeah. had babies born that were addicted and stuff. But acceptance is important. Does anybody have anything else on acceptance? Yeah. Nope, I think we go on to what Um, yeah. I, Oh, sorry, go ahead now. <laughs> I was going to say one of the things that worked for me for acceptance is that I wrote it down. Like I would write it down every day that I, um, I couldn't do this anymore and it was killing me. And it was like just the truth shoved into my face. I could look at it on paper and it made it more real. So that helped me a whole lot. Yeah, that's why they say make a gratitude list and write things down because it stares you right in the face. It kind of ingrains it in your brain when you write something down. They say there's a different effect to it when you write stuff down. It helps you remember it more. It's also, I mean, 
keeping a journal. I mean, that was suggested to me several times. I don't do it anymore, but I have in the past, you know, and everything like, like I put Monday, you know, the 10th or whatever, and then everything would be written down, you know, um, what I'm grateful for, you know, uh, what I'm doing, you know, what kind of day I had. So everything would be in context, you know what I mean? Of, of you know, how I was applying things as well as listing to stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's funny if I had some of those journals now, oh my God. <laughs> it's, oh. you know, they're in a recovery house basement somewhere in Florida or Philly or well, Florida, they don't have basements, but you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're long gone. I have journals will, I'm afraid maybe to Maybe somebody will have <laughs> That my fourth, fourth, my fourth step. There's, I can't tell you how many four steps I did, and I don't have any of them now. You know what I mean? And it's not like I consciously threw them away. They got left somewhere. Either you know, you know, I most of the time I could what I could carry in the trash bag is what I had, and that was it in a backpack. You know what I mean? So it was either left in a rehab or a recovery house or a crisis center or a detox or something. You know. Yeah. All right, so we're moving on to the next part, which is now we're going to read uh, a little bit more, which is we accepted that our lives have become impossible to manage. So that's something that we need to, I, that's part of accepting is that our lives have become impossible to manage. We couldn't do it. Day to day, we could not handle our shit. That's basically the way I put it in layman's terms. You couldn't handle it. You couldn't yeah. handle life the way it was going, and you needed mm -hmm. to accept that you needed to change. Um, those are strong words. My life had become, especially that word, impossible. Not that it was difficult, right? not really that you know easy. It was impossible to manage. You could not do it. You tried, and you tried, and you tried, because most of us tried. We just didn't really want to admit that we tried, because we didn't want to admit that we failed. Yeah. So we kind of, we kind of played it off like, oh, it's not a big deal. I just drink or whatever. But we really knew we had a problem. But we knew if we tried, we would fail. I know if I tried, I would fail. That's one of the reasons I never tried also. Mm. And I was used to my life. But, I mean, accepting that your life was impossible to manage was a big deal because my life had become impossible. I drank every single night. <clears throat> if I wasn't drinking, I was snorting Adderall and Klonopin. Yeah. Like, like a lot of it. Same here. <laughs> yeah. So what, what made your guys' lives impossible to manage? <clears throat> Who wants to go um, first? I'll go first. Um, well, first of all, I didn't recognize that my life was unmanageable. I think you touched on that a little bit. Uh, I thought it was normal, what I was doing. You know, a lot of my friends were doing the same thing. Um, you know, at 16, I had quit, I had quit school and went to work. Um, you know, uh, my life started to become a manager in high school, you know, cause I, you know, I, I didn't do any of my work, you know, um, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I was failing every class, um, you know, and they getting in trouble in school, you know, and the, uh, I went in with my mother to sign out when I was 16. They were 
all smiles and happy, <laughs> you know, trying to help me get out as fast as possible. Um, the only good thing I did is I went and took my Jeep. That, that was back in the day. This is what, 1980? Um, you could, maybe 79, I can't remember. You could go take your GED. As soon as you were 16, you didn't have to take a course. You didn't have to do any of that. Just go go to the place where you take your GED. And, you know, so I, I had my diploma, you know, two years before my class graduated. But, um, you know, then I started to work. And, you know, then I'd start missing days at work. And, you know, but I thought it was only lie and call on to work and, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, all the way to all this... I had already lost, um, I had lost a good job at, uh, yeah, I lost a real good job at, at a pipeline. Um, you know, one of the best jobs that anybody could get that wasn't, uh, you know, skilled at anything, you know. Um, and then I got another good job doing uh, commercial maintenance, property maintenance. And I ended up, you know, I just, I couldn't function because at, at this point it was mostly uh cocaine smoking or shooting cocaine um you know free basin was the big thing and uh, i finally you know i was curled up on the couch in the fetal position and you know i was blessed with a wonderful mother you know and she came up to me and said have you had enough yet you know and i was like yeah mom you know that's one I realized my life had become unmanageable because I was so sick all the time and, and, you know, I was missing work and again, I had a really good job. I was on the verge of getting fired and, you know, I was messing up things at work. You know, I, you know, I was, you know, wiring stuff and I was screwing up wiring stuff and somebody would come, come in to flick a switch and the switch would pop and, you know, doing all kinds of stupid stuff. Um, Jesus. You know, and, Thank God I had a good job to pay for my rehab, you know, and then, you know, she, uh, after I said, yeah, I've had enough, I handed her, uh, she asked for my wallet, I had my insurance card in it, and she came back in, you know, into the living room and said, uh, all right, you're going to Valley Forge Rehab tomorrow morning, eight o'clock. I was like, okay, I'm ready. You know, and that's, that's the first time I recognized my life was unmanageable. There's many more to come. So as we continue. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Mel? What made you realize your life had become impossible to manage? <clears throat> um, when I lost my kids, honestly, um, I lost my my first son just to the fact that I was drinking and, and doing drugs and um, that that there alone that I couldn't take care of him at all. And he even had his dad in his life then. Like we were both just alcoholics and drug addicts. And um, a couple of years after he went to stay with his grandmother, I got in a car accident. And um, that was from drinking and uh, taking a lot of medicine, like a lot of Adderall. And, and I drank like a liter, I think, of vodka. <laughs> and I woke up in the hospital with a broken neck and I was told that I would never walk again and uh, that I'd be paralyzed from the breastbone down for the rest of my life. And um, that's when I realized that like I had absolutely no control over it because I was still drinking like after that, like after I got out of the hospital, I would still drink just to shove down the emotions that I had of, um, being paralyzed and feeling 
awful for myself. And um, so, yeah, I was definitely powerless over it. You would think that something like that would make you like question, <laughs> question your, your, uh, your choices. Like, um, but it didn't for me, it just made me drink worse and um, participate in uh, addiction a lot more than before. But I do think that, that it did save my life in a way because um, I wasn't able to do things that I could have done before. Like I wasn't able to drive. I wasn't able to like go um, to go to like people's houses and get drugs and stuff. I wasn't, I was just not as independent as I was. So I think it did save my life in a way. Like it kept me from doing really dumb shit, but I still got high and still got drunk. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a crazy story about being almost paralyzed. Yeah, I, I was. That's a scary yeah, thing. I was a paraplegic, and like I, I um thought I'd never walk again. They never thought I'd walk again. So I mean, one day I got a walker and I started using it. And I guess your brain rewires everything, mm-hmm. like neurotransmitters and things. Um, it can it can learn how to walk again without actually mm-hmm. being like it was before. It makes new neural passageways. I think it's what it's called. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Neural pathways. Yeah, yeah I went a real similar thing, but uh, yeah, I broke my neck and herniated three discs and busted both my shoulders. I actually punctured my clavicles into my rotator cuffs. I fell 30 feet to the concrete. Ooh. Oh my! And yeah, I was I I wasn't paraplegic. My left arm was paralyzed, but. Uh, everything else i was okay with but before they operated on my neck they had to do both the shoulders first the surgeries on both the shoulders so mm-hmm. it was rough you know lucky. you are so blessed <laughs> oh yeah been told many many times uh, how lucky i was you know yeah you're both lucky <clears throat> i mean for me become my life become impossible to manage did i do mine already i don't think so yeah, no. I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I did it yet. So for me, my life becoming impossible to manage. I mean, one of the things like was I was broke a lot because I spent a lot of money on liquor. Liquor and cigarettes mm-hmm. cost a lot. When you add it up daily and then weekly and then monthly, it's in the yeah. thousands. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. Um, and my relationships, like I didn't have any relationships with friends. I, I was stuck to myself and just got high and drunk by myself. Um, or hung out with my girlfriend at the time. And that relationship was going downhill because she always wanted me to quit drinking and I couldn't quit drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had made my life impossible to manage because I couldn't, because I supposedly at the time really loved my ex-girlfriend. But I guess I didn't love her enough. You know what I mean? But when my daughter came around, I realized that my life had become impossible to manage. I can't live a life like this while my daughter's going to be around me. I needed to do something. Yeah, no, I get it. You know, I, I lived my life unmanageably for that 20 years. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, you know, with kids, um, you know, getting arrested in front of them, getting tased in front of them, uh, living in houses with no electricity, no running water, being homeless with them, um, you know, just everything you can think of. Uh, fist fighting with my ex-wife in front of him, um, 
I mean, my life was just a shambles. You know, and I went on like that. For the first five years, I was pretty, uh, pretty functional. Um, it wasn't until after I fell. That was, God, we got married in 92. Yes, in 97, I fell, and that started the opiates for me. And that, you know, just was a whole other chapter. You know what I mean? With the Oxycontin, 97, you know. And it's, back then, you could, I was on workers' comp, and back then, you could go to four different doctors and four different pharmacies, and, and nobody found out. You know, they didn't check. Yeah. You know, yep. I was... <clears throat> Or My friend and, basically made a living doing that. He would just doctor uh, shop every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a pain specialist. You know, we're nothing more than that. You know, nothing more than pill mills. You know. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I would I was getting you know what two hundred and forty oxy eighties a month. Gosh. You know, and I they'd be gone in a week and a half. I was doing up to 12, 12 a day. That's wow. crazy. Yeah, when comp ran out, then you know, it's either drink or get heroin. And you know, that went off and on for years. You know, yeah. so I started smoking crack and then everything else I stopped doing and I only smoked crack. <laughs> I would have a drink here and there, but you know, yeah, crack, your life sounded pretty unmanageable. Yeah, cracked, you know, that me and my wife had been, you know, separated. By then, I had already been incarcerated for over two years, and you know all kinds of crap happened in between. And but the crack started the homelessness and the, and the prostitutes, and you know it's just like crazy, crazy stuff. You know, I would have never guessed that you had done crack. <laughs> never. <laughs> wow. Crack was my lover for many, for about a year and a half, two years. You, you never know. I mean, you see some people. Yeah. They just like don't look like oh. It makes you realize anybody could have it. Anybody yeah. could get addiction and anybody could be addicted to anything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people's lives, they don't accept that they can't control it. They don't realize it's unmanageable and they wait too long and they die. Right. Yeah. So that's why step one is so important because that's what we're talking about at the end of the day right now. Is step one is... You got to come out of the closet. <laughs> exactly. You got to bring all the skeletons out of your closet. You got to clear the closet. Mm-hmm. And you got to accept that you have a problem, your life's impossible to manage, and you can't control your addiction. That's the basis of step one. And your family and friends will thank you for it, honestly. Because- yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think that they're failing by admitting they have a problem, like, oh, I'm a yeah. failure. No, I think it makes you a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know damn you're well. Change your life. It's not too late. I mean, it's never too late. I don't care what anybody says. I yeah. think in the big book, in one of the ver- revisions, there's a story of a 69-year-old woman who got sober, right? Am I crazy? Or did uh, I read it somewhere else? But I, I, I remember so. reading somewhere about this woman who she was 69 years old and she had been drinking her entire life. She got sober in the last years of her life, she said, were the best. Wow. Because <laughs> she could remember them. <laughs> exactly. That's another thing. I remember that's another way my life had become impossible to manage is the Klonopin and drinking mixed together caused oh, big wow. blackouts. And I did not yeah. remember anything that happened and you're a total different person during those blackouts exactly like you are not a good person yeah, <laughs> saying nasty things not. sending nasty texts oh, the next god, morning yeah. i'd be horrified to see what i said i'd be like oh my god yeah yeah it's like when you're hungover 
and like your friends come up and they're like, do you know what you did last night? And it's like, please don't tell me. I'm going to throw up. And they're just like, so you had your pants down, right? You were running down the street. And I'm just like, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. But I'm actually glad that a lot of people did tell me these things because I look back on it now and I'm like, no, <laughs> drinking Never beer again. is not worth that. Yeah. Yeah. I've embarrassed myself so, so much. We uh. do stupid things. That's, yeah. why we need to, that's why we got step one to admit we got a problem. We can't control it. Yeah. That's the that that's the third part. So we went through, we accept our lives that become impossible to manage. And the last part is, and we could not control our addiction. Yeah. So we were all out of control. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I couldn't when I quote unquote got sober, all I did was quit drinking and started snorting out at all. <laughs> and I still I told everyone I got sober. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm not drinking anymore. Yeah. But I'm doing that. And like yeah. I'm acting like this is okay. It's like as long as it's prescribed, I'm good. And it wasn't <laughs> prescribed. Oh, okay. I well, was buying it for my buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean you were sober from drinking, all right. But like, yeah, there's another void that you had to fill with something the, else. It, the thing was it was the same void. I just filled it with something different. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like I would stay up for days playing my instruments, my guitar and piano. I literally would stay up for three days. One time I had to go to the hospital because I had been standing up playing guitar for so long that my ankles had swollen up from all the, I guess, blood oh, flow yeah. or whatever. Mine used to do that all the time. When I would stay up on Adderall, they would be like as big as tree trunks. Like exactly. my ankles would be so, so swollen. And I thought that there was something really wrong with me. Like I was having renal failure or something. Exactly. But, um, so I went to the hospital because I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. What did they tell you? They said, what do you expect? You're standing up for three days. <laughs> did you tell them you were on Adderall? <laughs> I kind of told them. Yeah. I didn't admit as far as how much, but I said, oh, I took some and I didn't know how strong it was and it made me stay up for so long. When <laughs> I took a lot. Yeah. I snorted a lot. But yeah, a lot of us are lives that we, uh, we could not control our addiction. I mean... I was always doing something. I could not control it. Anytime I wanted to stop, there was no way I was doing it. Yeah. Sometimes, I'm trying to think if I actually ever got sober for an extended period of time. Besides probation. <laughs> I don't think there was. I don't think that I even had a time where I said, oh, look at me, I'm going to get sober. Because like I said, when I stopped doing one thing, I just started doing another. Yeah. It was like that for me too. I would, I would replace drugs with other things. Like I would replace meth with Adderall, of course. And, um, I would just try not to abuse it. So I thought I was okay. Um, but then like, after I decided that, uh, substances are not the way to go in any regard whatsoever. I mean, I am on Suboxone, but that helps me entirely different in a different way. It doesn't like feed my, um, craving for getting high or anything like that. But um, I, I noticed I started doing other unhealthy things that were self-destructive, like just to have some control in my life. Like um, I started uh, doing the keto diet, but I started doing it to like extreme measures. And um, I realized pretty quickly after I lost a bunch of weight, I was like, maybe I need to slow down on this. So like, it's, it's easy to just replace drugs, especially with anything, honestly, um, even if it's not another substance, mm -hmm. you can replace it oh, with yeah, actions and behavioral things. Absolutely. 
So Kevin, what was what was like moments you realized you're you're like you couldn't control it? Was there ever a time um, where you were like, okay, let me let me try and control this, and it just miserably failed? I never even thought about trying to control it because I knew, you know, if I didn't get help and stop, there was no control. And I, I knew that I, I had that education. It was all choice at this point. You know, I didn't choose to be an addict, but, you know, I knew recovery was out there and, and I had experienced it. So as far as I'm concerned, any time past that, you know, it's my choice to pick up again, um, you know, and it, God, you know, there's a whole list of things, you know what I mean? As far as losing jobs, not being able to keep a job, being homeless, you know, uh, having, you know, doing risky behavior, you know, being with prostitutes and, and you know, um, using needles and, and, you know, smoking out a crack pipe that 10 people smoked out of, you know, it's just, it's amazing. And I'm blessed, you know, I didn't think God was, had his eyes on me for a long time because I never got a um, STD. I never got, well, most of the time I was protected, but anyway, um, you know, but I never got hep, hep C. I never got AIDS, you know, and it's just. Yeah, a lot I, of people get that from sharing needles. Right. I just think it's amazing. And, and crack pipes too. Um, crack pipes is another big spreader. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, just, it was just crazy for years, you know. Um, I'd be homeless, and I didn't even think about it. All I thought about was getting my next one, whatever it was. I didn't think about trying to get better. I didn't care. Um, I didn't have my kids anymore at one point. You know, my ex left me with, with the kids. Um, you know, both of us ended up, um, I don't want to say you know, losing our kids. We gave them away is what we did. Um, because we refused to get better. She wasn't an addict, but, you know, she had her own issues, but, um, you know, I was an addict, and I chose drugs and alcohol over my kids, you know. Um, you know talk, just, about being at, talk about being out of control. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when I started to get, you know, sober and clean, it was around 2009, um, you know, I relapsed like six times, uh, six or seven times. You know, and there were times that, you know, I, I don't call it a relapse if I go into rehab and then go right back out and start using, you know, because that's just a 30-day uh, vacation to get out of the cold, you know. It wasn't, you know, so like, I've been to 16 rehabs, um, 16, some of them multiple times, but 16 times I had been to rehab and uh, 14 crisis centers. And like I said before, over... Uh, off and on over two and a half years of being incarcerated, you know, and being homeless and recovery houses and, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, it's been four years, you know, now that I've been clean. Um, you know, my last, uh, the last uh, uh, recovery center I went to was, you know, best. You know, I had been to it before, but I got kicked out. Um, you know, but I luckily I was they accepted me back again. It was a Christ centered recovery, um, recovery center, and um, you know, I did a year there and I got out and I haven't looked back. You know, I built my tools, I do what I'm supposed to do now. Um, 
know, and I had been sober three years when I relapsed and I had stopped, uh, I hadn't smoked crack since 2010. And I hadn't done any illegal opiates since 2013. And I hadn't drank since, I haven't drank since 2016, but I relapsed on my uh, psych meds, clonopin, like we were talking about before, you know. Uh, I abused the clonopin I had. So, and I did, uh, I said uh, I didn't do any illegal opiates. I did do uh, Suboxone illegally uh, with the with the clonopin mixed with Soma, um, you know, so for about a week, week and a half. And by that, I was rendered homeless, you know, because where I was staying, I couldn't use and stay there. So, you know, I had to go to rehab and then I went straight into the year-long recovery program, detox, rehab, year-long recovery program. And, um, you know, it's the best thing I could have done, you know, uh, just, I keep doing the same thing I do every day, you know, and, and, and helping others and, and doing, working on myself and, you know, and like I said, I haven't looked back, you know. It's a better feeling than uh, getting high. I think when you're oh, helping yeah. other people and taking mm -hmm. care of yourself, it's a much better. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a much, <clears throat> it's a much better place to be. Addiction's a lonely place to be in. Recovery, you're talking to people, you're helping people. That's why they're step 10 or for the other group, step 12, giving back. You know, it's really important. But I think this has been a good podcast. How do you guys feel? I like okay. it. I like it too. We should do yeah. it more often. Yeah, we'll do it because obviously we're going to start doing all the steps. So we'll do uh, step two next, which is the four pillars of Addicts Anonymous. But uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. All right. All right, guys, sit tight for me. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Tumblr, plus many more. You can also check us out on our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of free resources and literature. So that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time. Bye.